welcome to the monthly BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is episode three for February 2023. Hello from me, Terry Bennett. And hello from me, Jenny Devitt. Coming up in this edition. Well-known Dorset musician, folk singer and storyteller Tim Laycock answers the random 19 questions. Deputy Leader of Dorset Council Peter Wharf tells me of the council's plans for a council tax second home levy. Courtney chats with Pauline Batstone about her life and her Dorset Island disc choices. And wildlife writer Jane Adams talks about missing the song thrush's melody, but believes there's hope the shy bird will make a comeback in Dorset. The person chosen to answer this month's Random 19 questions is well-known in Dorset folk music, storytelling and Thomas Hardy circles. He's actor, musician, singer and playwright Tim Laycock. His connection with Dorset goes back a long way to when he was just three years old. His family moved from neighbouring Wiltshire when his father got the job as headmaster in Fontmel Magna. He went to school in Shaftesbury at the old grammar school, moved away for some 10 years, then returned to Dorset in the 1980s and has been here ever since. Dorset, Tim says, has been the inspiration for pretty much everything he does. Since, amongst those other talents he possesses, Tim is a singer, what would be the last song he sang out loud in his car? Well, funny enough, it's an older song. It's one that's very much to do do with the play that I'm working on at the moment, which is called Spinning the Moon. Um, And the play is set in uh, the aftermath of the Battle of Bosworth. Um, And one of the songs we're singing is a drinking song from the time called Bring Us In Good Ale. So I've been driving around the place singing, top of my voice, Bring Us In Good Ale, Good Ale, Bring Us In Good Ale. And it's... (laughs) It, uh, this, the song lists all the, all the uh, different foods of the time and, you know, most of them at that time were adulterated in some sort of way or, you know, not very good, but you could always rely on ale. It sounds, sounds wonderful. So what happens yes. if you draw up alongside another motorist and they look <laughs> well, at you <laughs> as if exactly. you were nutty? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think you can be breathalyzed for singing about it, can you? <laughs> No, certainly not. Now, uh, Tim, I'm a great movie buff, so what was the last, I don't know whether you are, what was the last one you watched? And and would you, if so, you know, would it be something you recommend? Well, it'd certainly be something I recommend, and uh, to be honest, I didn't see it uh, at the cinema. I saw it on on the telly over Christmas, but I watched um, Sam Mendes' film of um, 1917, and I really liked that. I mean, it's a period that I'm very interested in anyway. It's a, it's a story from the First World War of uh, two soldiers who are given a mission to cross no man's land and across enemy lines to, um, to take a, a vital message to a, a, another group of soldiers who are about to be trapped. So they have to get this message through. And it's, that's the story, really. It's just the journey, but it's so well done. And it really gives you a tremendous feel for the period, I think. Now it's Friday night. You yep. have the house to yourself. Yes. And no work is allowed. What are you going to do? Ah, well, I suppose it depends whether you consider this to be work or not for somebody like me. But um, I've been learning the cello for quite a long time, and during lockdown, I really got stuck into it. 
Um, and so what I absolutely love to do if there's no one else around is to play it. Uh, and if there's no one else around, I can play it as loud as I like. Um, and in fact, at the moment, Jenny, we live in a semi-detached cottage and uh, our neighbours have moved out. So there's no one next door either. So I can really go for it. And uh, playing that very loud with uh, accompanied by a, a small glass of scotch is uh, a very good way to spend a Friday night, I would say. Sounds sounds great. So Elgar uh, Cello Concerto coming up. <laughs> that's not quite, but uh, that sort of thing, yes. So Tim, what is your comfort meal? Uh, chicken curry of some sort. And now to switch tack completely, what would you like to tell fifteen-year-old you? And fifteen-year-old you, of course, was, was still in Dorset. Still in Dorset, yeah. I think I would tell myself uh, to learn to play the piano because that's the one thing I regret really. If I'd learned to play the piano when I was much younger, it would have been so useful to me. So piano and cello, mm -hmm. I'm just wondering what comes next. Tim, what is your, your best crisps flavour? Well, now I, I do like crisps, but recently I've discovered veg veggie crisps and I really really like them so I would go for a nice bag of veggie crisps and what about biscuits best biscuit for dunking uh, it's got to be a bourbon sounds good to me uh, now yeah. what book Tim did you read last year that stayed with you and, and what made you love it well the one I read was by Natasha Solomons and it's called Mr Rosenblum's List and it's a fantastic book. Natasha lives in North Dorset. And um, this book, which I think is probably her first one, is partly about her grandfather, who uh, was Jewish and came to this country um, just before the Second World War. And when he got off the boat, he was given a list of things that he had to do to become a proper Englishman, um, one of which was to um, join a golf club. <laughs> but he moved to, he moved into London and set up a business in the East End and then got in, promptly got interned as soon as the war started. But he came down to Dorset when he was finally released and, and just fell in love with the place and decided to move here. So he came uh, to somewhere which sounds like it's probably in the Iberton area. And, he, and the book is about how this... Um, Jewish businessman uh, becomes integrated in the community and it's just such a delightful book. It's quite funny, lots of humour in it, um, but the other thing I love about it is that there's so much um, folklore in it as well um, and some of it is actual folklore that I already knew about and quite a lot of it is folklore that I think Natasha has um, sort of slightly tweaked a little bit because I've never heard it before relating to Dorset but what it builds up is a wonderful picture of this rather eccentric chap who moves to a Dorset village how the locals um, react to him and he does in fact solve the problem of the golf course by building one on the side of Bullbarrow and I'm pretty sure I can remember growing up in that area that there was a, a golf course up there at one point um, but, you know, not really the ideal place for a golf course because if you knock the balls too far, you've got a long way to go to pick them up again. <laughs> and it's also probably, also probably rather windy up there. Too. <laughs> Very windy, I should think. So, Tim, superpowers, what's your secret superpower? Oh, um... Do you have one? No, I don't think I do. <laughs> I don't think I've got a superpower. 
Well, moving on to pets now. Cats or yes, dogs? Definitely cats. Right. Now, what is your most annoying trait? Uh, obviously, annoying to other people. Yes. Well, I'm told, even though I don't really regard it as particularly annoying myself, is that my most annoying trait is actually um, leaving heaps of stuff around the house. So, you know, it could be heaps of clothes, which actually are just clothes prepared, ready for use uh, the next day. Or it could be, and usually is, heaps of uh, scripts or writing paper and things like that, which actually are laid out carefully in order, ready to be uh, worked on. But, uh, yeah, heaps are a source of annoyance. <laughs> but, not, but, but not to you. <laughs> not to me, no. They're there for a reason. No, no. exactly. <laughs> Tim, what would, you, what would you most like to be remembered for? I think I'd most like to be remembered for helping to just keep alive the sort of flame of Dorset oral history. I mean, so many people over the years have given me stories and songs and taught me things. Generally people uh, from an older generation than myself and... I now feel that I'm in a position to do the same thing and I just love it when people become enthused by anything to do with the old stories and customs and the songs of the county. Um, and, you know, it's that I find deeply rewarding. And a, a lovely sense of continuity. Yes, absolutely. Now, shopping. What shop can you not pass without going in? Ah, well, that's very easy because just down the valley here in the, in the Bride Valley is the Modbury Farm Shop, uh, and it's just wonderful. And it's, uh, it's you know it's got a lovely range of stuff, produce. Loads of it is local, uh, and it's also a very social place to go to as well because you nearly always see someone down there that you know. And I would just recommend it to anybody. It's it's extremely hard to go past without going in, which I'm sure is exactly what they want. Now, what about your favourite quote? It, it could, this could be a film, a book, or inspirational. We, we, we won't judge you on this one, but we would like to know why. <laughs> why? Well, I, I've, I've thought hard about this because it's, it's, I did find this quite difficult because I don't often quote other people's quotes, um, and I know loads of lines from plays and things like that. But in the end, I think probably my favourite quote is the last line of William Barnes's famous poem which is called Praise of Dorset and Barnes wrote um, wonderful poetry in the Dorset dialect nearly all inspired by friends and faces and people he knew in the in the Stormster Newton area and the first first well all the verses finish with to, for Dorset dear then gee one cheer do you hear one cheer and I think yeah we could even give them three cheers, but it's it's a lovely, lovely way to uh, end a verse of a poem, I think. Lovely line. Now, uh, evenings. Tell us about one of the best evenings you've ever had. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, this was fantastic. So last year, Commonwealth Games were held in Birmingham, and we were lucky enough to get some tickets to go to the closing ceremony of that. Um through family connections, I have to say, because my son-in-law uh, was involved in the production team there. So we were able to go and we took two of our grandchildren. And it was just the most fantastic celebration of Birmingham. The, the, all the athletes were there. They'd all finished all their races and things like that. So they were all relaxing. And uh, it was a whole uh, string of 
mostly singers and dancers from all sorts of different cultural backgrounds, but all connected with Birmingham. Uh, and the songs were amazing and, and the place was absolutely heaving and the whole audience had come for a good time. Uh, and it, you felt as you were going there that the whole city was sort of patting itself on the back for having put on such a good games, really. And, the, you know, the transport system was wonderful. Everything worked and uh, it was just a real celebration of a city that I've been to so many times in the past to sing in folk clubs. But I saw it in a different light that, that night and everybody was just so friendly and so exuberant, really. So it was a really wonderful evening. What, what, what was the last gift you either gave or received? Ah, uh, the, la- ah the last gift that I, we received was actually yesterday. Uh, and we'd lent uh, a little electric freezer to somebody in the village, a little portable thing, and they brought it back. And they gave us a picture of a cat in a frame. And we thought, oh, that's a bit, you know, that's quite nice, but not quite sure where they gave us that. But then when we looked at the cat closely, we realised it was a photo that they had taken of our last cat. So we don't have any cats at the moment. Um, but outside our little house here in Little Britty, we've got a, a stone statue to our last cat who was called Bimport after the place in Shaftesbury. And they'd got a photo of it, which they'd taken when uh, years years before. So it was such a such a touching thing to receive this little uh, picture and be reminded of uh, a very very dear pet, really. Oh, very nice. Now your websites top three most visited. That doesn't include social media or BBC News. You're not allowed. Right. Those. Well, my top three websites are all the same one, really. It's just YouTube. I just absolutely love YouTube and uh, I use it more than anything else I would say because there's just so much wonderful music there's so much history on it as well you know and I oft- I very often use the um, uh, on YouTube uh, the how to repair such and such site and things like that and they are very very entertaining um, and so that's my that's my go-to site um, other than that I mostly use the news <laughs> And what in life is, frankly, a mystery to you? Um, <laughs> well, I would say computers, really. Chip shop chips or home-baked cake? I think it would be home-baked cake, definitely. And finally, Tim, you have the power to pass one law tomorrow, uncontested. What would you do? Ah, I think I would, I would pass a law that it that every child ought to be able to study art and music at school at the level they would like to. I think that would be wonderful. Pass no more I'm here today at Dorset County Hall in Dorchester with Councillor Peter Wharf, and we've just been attending the Place and Resources Overview Committee, which has been discussing the proposed extra levy on second homes in the Dorset Council area. So, Peter, thank you for joining us, first of all. And if you could possibly tell us first, what is the Place and Resources Overview Committee? What does it do? 
Uh, certainly. I mean, as always, the structure of local government can be difficult for some people to understand, but we have what's called a cabinet system that take executive decisions, and some of those decisions need to be ratified at full council. And in order not to just uh, have decisions within a small group of people, we have overview committees uh, which actually look at issues and comment on what our plans are and make suggestions as to whether we should do it, whether we should not do it, and many changes. So today's place overview committee reviewed the proposals we've got for second homes council tax, had a very, very robust debate and approved what we're doing with a number of, uh, I think, very sensible additions. Okay, so let's get on to the proposal itself then. First of all, what is the definition of a second home? It seems to me it could be quite a grey area in some respects. You're right, it is something of a grey area. Uh, The definition is being formulated in the levelling up legislation that is currently going through Parliament and it may change before the end of March but at its simplest you have a home that you live in and you nominate that as your prime residence and if you have another home in your name it is a second home. Now what's a home? Even a park home or a chalet or something like that may well be a second home so you may have to inquire and get some clarification but if you've got two lots of bricks and mortar then one of them is a second home all right perhaps a bit of clarification to be gained there through the legislative process but assuming then that you meet the definition of having a second home what is the dorset council proposal now i understand it's it's rooted in the primary legislation which is the leveling up bill but what's the proposal that dorset council is going to adopt for the treatment of second home owners? Well the proposal is that we adopt national legislation so we're not doing anything that isn't prescribed so other local authorities will either do this or not there won't be any flexibility to go halfway in between and the proposal is for second homes as nominated that they will be charged 200% council tax so if they're paying 100% at the moment they will pay 200% this doesn't apply to second homes that are used as a permanent residence this is primarily for what is called in the legislation intermittent residence which is where people go and occupy it etc but even a permanent resident that's rented permanently can be moved to intermittent so second homes let intermittently 200% on the times that they're let intermittent. This could be seen as trying to discourage the ownership of second homes within the county. What is the problem with second homes? I mean, there's many features of that has been quoted today in the meeting, but could you summarise what the council sees as the difficulties with people having second homes in the county and not being here very often? Well, first thing is I'd like to say there are two sides to this argument, so please don't take this as one side only. And I have met many people who say second homes bring vibrancy and bring people who spend money in local cafes and spend more money than would local people. The alternative argument, and who knows, they could both be correct, is that if a place has too many second homes, it lacks community, it lacks enough people to be able to keep the library running, the doctor's surgery running, particularly primary schools, because second home owners, A, don't live there, and B, tend not to have young children. So it tends to detract and and take away from the community spirit. Uh, And this is something that is quite difficult to measure, 
but you know it when you see it. Okay, one figure that was quoted during the meeting today, which rather struck me, is that there are currently 5,722 second homes in Dorset. There are 3,700 people on the housing list and a further 2,000 waiting for assessment. So that, within 22, adds up to the same figure. It's a fairly compelling argument, then, for penalising those with second homes which are possibly needed for those who have no home at all. Well, absolutely, you put the argument very well. Uh, clearly, second homes wouldn't automatically swap over, so there's not, there's not a one-for-one. One. And I wouldn't use the word penalise. I, I, it's a premium you pay for uh, having the pleasure and privilege of coming down and spending your time and your holidays in Dorset. So I don't think it's a penalty, and it's not huge. And, you know, the argument is if you can afford a second home, you can afford another lot of council tax, which hopefully will go some way to addressing the issues that overly second home usage can bring to a community where certain, you know, even, even local clubs and knit and natter clubs and old age pensioners clubs end up they're just not enough people and we had the story in today's debate of a village in Devon where the pub closes uh, it, apart from a few days over Christmas closes between September and April because there are just isn't enough people there and the village becomes relatively dormant so it's an argument and I've had the argument the other way that second homers bring vitality and bring additional revenue my view is that I think this is a small price to pay and it's a little bit of a premium and there are two other things. One is this may affect people's behaviour and people may choose to spend their time in hotels, guest houses or whatever rather than second homes, which if they do that, they'll build up the housing stock and they'll still give, give us value. Or, or, or they may choose to come in a caravan or something like that. I don't know. I think there are, there are ways around it. It may change people's behaviour. It may. Some people have told me they're going to sell up and never going to come here again. I hope that isn't true. That is a danger. And what about people who have second homes which are let permanently to people who just need a home uh, and are never going to be able to buy a home? Or alternatively, Airbnb owners, what's the situation with them? Well, the first example, they're letting permanently, they won't pay 200% council tax. The second example, Airbnb, they will, because Airbnb is built on a basis of letting out what you might call intermittently and they're the ones that we think reduce the sense of community within a village because quite often people come on holiday to a second home and they come with everything prepared, food, etc, etc. So the argument among some of my colleagues is that they don't add much value. It's quite an emotional debate and I have to say it's, um, it's, it was a worthwhile debate today and the other thing I did today, and I'm glad you've given me this opportunity, is that I've, I've said that this will be a cross-party, no, no whip, because I think it's really important that this is going to affect the financial landscape for quite some years to come, and I can't forecast who or won't be in power, and it's important that we all agree with it. OK, finally then, this has gone through the Place and Resources Overview Committee today, which was supportive of the proposal. What happens next, and when is it likely to be implemented? And the final part, if you do get it through, what will you use the projected £9.5 million per year that, uh, that might be forthcoming from this? OK, what happens next? There is a Cabinet meeting in a couple of weeks' time in which I will present this paper, and I would hope that it is approved and that any recommendations that today's committee made will be approved. 
It will then come to full council before the end of March, which if it is approved, we will then give notice to the Department of Leveling Up and Communities, DLUC as it's excitingly known, which will then allow us to introduce it one year after, should the legislation be passed. Uh, your question, what would we use the money for, is a very interesting question. Quite reasonable, but my problem is that we wouldn't start getting this for you know well over a year, and who knows what's happening then. And the other thing is we don't know how much we might get out of it. There's a forecast, but we think, I personally think, this may well lead to changes in behaviour, people selling houses or whatever. So exactly how much, when we'd get it, and how we'd get it is just too difficult to actually forecast right now. What I am going to suggest to Cabinet is that we review this situation as per the recommendation of overview quite soon after it's implemented so that we can see what it is we've gained and what the effect is and therefore how we might wish to channel the f additional funds we've raised. Although I have to say that you know the finance portfolio might just say, excuse me, we have to stay balanced and you know you can't tell me how to spend my money. Councillor Peter Wolf, Deputy Leader of Dorset Council, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. For this month's Dorset Island Discs, Courtney chatted with local councillor Pauline Batstone. Now, Pauline is a local girl at heart. She was born in Dorset and has lived most of her life here. Her parents were farmers. And in her professional career, she became a probation officer, managed the youth offending team in Bournemouth and Poole, and has worked in various social work settings. Although she officially retired from professional life, that signalled her greater involvement as a town councillor at Sturminster Newton and also as a county councillor for Dorset Council. Courtney started by asking Pauline about her first musical selection. The first song that you've chosen is Marching Strings, um, which I believe is related to an early childhood memory. Can you tell me more? Yes, there used to be Uncle Mac playing music requests from children on the radio when I was very small. And I liked this tune, Marching Strings. Um, and I decided to take it upon myself as a very small child. Someone must have given me the address, I don't know, but I managed to write and request that it was played for me, <laughs> and I got it played to the amazement of friends and family. Someone must have given me the details, I don't know how I did it, but um, I, I remember being quite pleased that I'd achieved this. That's excellent. Okay, so then we move on to your, your, your next song, um, by Tommy Steele, I believe, Singing the Blues. Why this song? Well, my very good friends and I... Um, very close friends up at Matt Tyler. They were very keen on Elvis Presley, but at the time, in a sense, there was um, competition between Elvis Presley and, and Tommy Steele, mostly. Mm. And I was, a, I was a Tommy Steele fan, so I went for Tommy Steele. And interestingly, yesterday evening, uh, there was a programme on television about Tommy Steele and his career, as he's now 84, I think. And still a fan, then? Oh, still a fan. Even more of a fan, having heard more of his career and seen him yesterday. Fantastic. OK, so your third choice... I think it's one that everybody knows, really. The Beatles, Love Me Do. Why? Because when the Beatles came on the scene, and I was probably uh, in uh, upper fifth or sixth form or whatever at, at school in Sherbourne, um, it was such a different music from what had gone before. It was so distinctive. Um, and uh, and then other similar sort of stuff came afterwards. But no, the Beatles were, were such a distinctive group at that time, so that's why that one still with you now you think oh, I enjoy the Beatles anyone has to enjoy the Beatles <laughs> I think still come on fair enough 
Okay, and then something completely different. Diff left, left, left curve here, I think uh, we could say. Blue Danube Waltz, um, which is a very long way from teenager Pauline Groove into the Beatles. Yeah, I think where I stuck that one in. I think because, that's right, my parents were keen on old-time dancing. And indeed, I remember as a very small child being danced around the garden by my father to the Blue Danube Waltz. But I also remember as a sixth former, I think I must have been, I could drive by then. I had my own car by then. Mum and Dad would go off all over the county with their mates doing old time dancing. I was the one sitting at home doing my homework and saying, what time do you call this when they came in? And on, I remember one particular occasion when uh, the phone went very late at night. They were in Weymouth. They'd locked their car keys in the car. So could I take my, I think it's probably my elderly Morris A30 down to Weymouth at sort of midnight to go and pick them up and bring them back along with the you know spare keys so I think that's what the Blue Danube remembers reminds me of them and their old time dancing I say it sounds like not much has changed really doesn't yeah. it definitely okay so now you you don't mention the specific song here but I'm going to push you on it a little bit you mentioned generally reggae so any particular track in particular that you think? I can't think anymore now. Um, I, that came about because when I left school, I went to Secretarial College, which was great, um, down at Bridport, for uh, young ladies of a good education and learned to do shorthand and typing and bookkeeping and went to work in Bristol. And this was Bristol in 1968, uh, 60, yeah, just 68. And... Um, if you remember, that's not long after Windrush. I was going to say, it's a Windrush generation. And we just, had yeah. a lot of West Indians coming into St Paul's. I used to help in a West Indian, uh, Anglo-West Indian youth club there. Some great friends there who, like me, were country people. We were always looking ourselves, locking ourselves out with Yale locks because we weren't used to <laughs> Yale locks and things like that. And learning things like, you know, my friends were a range of people from the West Indies, a range of skin colours. And them saying to me, Pauline, we wouldn't have been friends in the West Indies because this guy has a blacker, got a blacker skin than I've got, so we wouldn't have been friends, but here we're friends. And uh, reggae music was part of that time, and I've still got my steward's badge from the first St Paul's Festival. Must be something very different to, different to, to hear. Yeah. yeah, very, very much so. So but no the, one track in particular, but just a general love no, of the music. I thought I still had the records around somewhere, but I couldn't find them when I looked. But um, I think, yes, it was very different. But they, like me, were country people who'd come to a big city. Mm -hmm. The fact that their original origin was a very different sort of countryside to mine, but uh, there were a lot of similarities. Well, I'm sure we can find a, a reggae track to put in there for you that will uh, represent that Absolutely. for you. Absolutely. I still like reggae. It's brilliant. Re excellent. Okay, so again, again, a bit of a, another sort of sidekick really here. Um, Waltzing Matilda. Is this because of a love of the tune, or is there an Australian connection as well? A very strong Australian connection. Uh, my uncle um, was in Australia when I was a child, was always hearing about Australia. Um, subsequent history, family history research has, re has revealed that my... In fact, my grandmother was born in Australia because it was an earlier wave of people who'd gone to Australia. And Walsing Matilda, A, because uh, I think great-great-grandmama, mother of one who had originally gone to Australia, she was a Matilda, and I've been going to Australia on visits to my friends and family since 1971. So Australia is my second home. And you still have family there now? I still have family there. I'm planning another visit now. Excellent. Okay. I worked there for a while as well. I, I um, got a Dorset Council Scholarship, not Dorset Council Scholarship, British Council Scholarship, um, for my last year at university and went with other students to 
uh, work in Australia, the idea was you work for two months and the other months to wander around Ooh. using the money you'd saved. So I had two months working in the immigration department in Canberra and uh, went around parts of Australia at that point and then went across to the other side, across the Nullarbor in a bus when the roads weren't even made up. <laughs> right. um, and that was my first trip to, to Western Australia, to Australia. And um, where, where are families sort of located now? Uh, some of them are in uh, Fremantle and Perth, but on the earlier wave of migrants, my great-grandfather went out in 1867 with his very new wife from Somerset. Off they went as migrants. Um, I don't think she'd even seen a ship before, I suspect. They went off into Melbourne, went up to Sydney, went up to the northern part of Western Australia. He became a school teacher. Um, sadly, he died after about 10 years there. He and his wife both died young. But a, one of my other cousins and I did go uh, trailing round to the places where he had he and his wife had been and visited the places where he had founded schools in mm. his time, um, ending up in Woodburn, which is on the very big Richmond River, and that's where sadly he died. But I was in touch with the school there um, and I've seen records of his time there. So I've got rallies on both sides um, and I still am in touch with descendants of the first lot as well as my present lot. Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue is your seventh choice. Tell me more about that. I just love that music. It's fantastic. I love that sort of, it's not quite jazz, but it almost is, that history of the 1930s or so on. I love the fashions of the 1930s. Um, Gershwin brings back all sorts of memories. So it's a really moving piece of music. Beethoven's Ode to Joy is your last choice. It's part of Beethoven's Choral Symphony. It's a fantastic piece of music. Plus, it reminds me of church. I'm involved with the church here at Matt Powder and we sing the Ode to Joy as part the tune for, the, for Gloria. Also, it reminds me as a politician of all the Brexit stuff as well. So it brings in all sorts of other memories and it's lovely music. Absolutely. Are you in a choir? No. No? They wouldn't have me in a choir. No, 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 no. I am the church warden. I have to stand at the front and make sure the rest of them try and sing. Fair enough. Thank you for, the, for talking about your music choices. I, we also need to um, discover what book you would like to take with you on your island. I really hadn't thought about that one. I think I'd take the book I've just bought, which is actually um, Robert Young's book, The Poems of Rabin Hill, okay. which is Dorset Poems. And you say, OK, you mean you don't know? I don't know it. No, tell me more. Well, Rabin Hill, um, the persona of Robert Young, was living in the mid-1860s. Well, Robert Young lived right through to 1900, early 1900s. But he was a stemister guy, and he was a tailor. Um, he was a working guy through that. He built several houses in Stir, including the one where Thomas Hardy lived for a while and where The Hive, where a well-known mm -hmm. entrepreneurial family currently live. Um, and he is especially wrote um, an account of Raven Hill, this old country boy, coming down from Stoke Wake with the farmer in his trap and being taken on the train to as his first train ride. He'd never seen a train. The train has come to stir. Raven Hill is determined to see the train. And he goes on this train ride to Temple Coombe. The farmer pays for him and ins pays insurance as part of his ticket. So wow. he knew he was all right. And they went through to Temple Coombe and came back. And he couldn't believe how quickly they were back. But he thought he saw the devil on the train because it was this man in black and all this fire. And it was this stoker he'd seen. <laughs> So I commend it to you, it's, um, but his, his poems are fascinating. Um, I, I will now endeavour to take a good look. It sounds, it sounds brilliant. Okay, so well, you've got your boot music and we've got your book. What luxury item 
would make your time as a castaway more bearable. <laughs> Quite like to take a satellite phone, I think that would be <laughs> ideal. I think that might be cheating, but oh, yes, okay. a satellite phone. Is that is is that your final answer? Do you That's think my final that? answer. A final satellite phone, and that, and that I suppose is to to for why to keep in touch with your many uh... <laughs> to arrange my rescue. Thank you. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and lastly, um, were there to be an enormous wave crashing upon your shore, and you were only able to save one of your favourite discs, which one would it be? I think it would have to be the Gershwin. The Gershwin. And why, above all else? Oh, I just think that's probably the most moving of all of the ones. The most moving. As a piece of music in its own right. Fair enough. Good answer, Pauline. Pauline, thank you very much for your time. It's been fascinating, and I'm sure everybody is going to agree that your answers are equally so. Thank you for having us on your Dorset Island. Thank you. Wildlife. Wildlife writer Jane Adams is missing her early morning alarm call, but feels there may be signs of hope for Mavis. Every year, around this time, the sound of a bird would pull me from sleep. Perched at the top of a neighbour's rowan tree, its silhouette would gradually emerge. With head flung back, spiralling columns of condensing breath would rise from its beak, and I'd become lost in the phrases of its repeated song. It was a song thrush. Fifty years ago, its song would be heard all over Dorset, but, like so many of our songbirds, its numbers have steeply declined by more than 50%. The last time I was woken by a song thrush was more than five years ago. Some people have blamed their decrease on sparrowhawks and magpies, but this doesn't stack up. Research by the British Trust for Ornithology has found that, over the last 30 years, the proportion of predated thrush nests has actually decreased. Thrushes are just as likely to have declined in areas where hawks and magpies are missing. Sadly, human interference is the real culprit. We've taken away hedgerows, woods and wet ditches, increased drainage and tillage on the land, and there are now fewer permanent pastures. We've removed the food and the nesting sites which song thrushes need to survive. Still, there is hope. By planting new woodlands, and with careful management of hedges and wildflower strips on farms, they, along with our other British songbirds, can thrive again. In some places where this land management has already been taking place, there are signs that song thrushes are making a tentative recovery. We need to help them. For centuries, this blackbird-sized brown bird with its spotted chest has been a part of our culture. Shakespeare and Chaucer called them Mavis, but in more recent literature, it's probably better known from the poem by local lad Thomas Hardy. Written at the end of the 19th century, The Darkling Thrush starts with a haunting, bare winter scene, full of hardship and sadness. It could have been written about the last few years we've had. Then a song thrush sings. As dusk fell tonight, a song thrush was singing in my neighbour's garden. Maybe Hardy's Darkling Thrush can teach us something in 2023. Listening to and being in nature has a canny knack for helping our sense of well-being. So this February, try getting out into the countryside at dawn or dusk and listen for the hopeful song of a song thrush. Well, that's it for the February edition of the BV Magazine podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. Join us again in March. And until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt.